Why do we invite people to something like Easter? Why, why do we invite people to a thing called Focus uh, as a junior high and high school? So why, why is evangelism important at all? It's, it's because Jesus came to save the lost. I was lost. Now, by God's grace, I am found. And, and now I know my Lord and my Savior, Jesus Christ, because of his grace and because of his people. They were fishermen, fishers of men and women. And God used his church to go and uh, proclaim the gospel to bring me into relationship with him. That's where we are this morning in our series called Unashamed through the Book of Romans. I want to talk about this thesis verse that we looked at in the first week. Romans 1, 16, 17 says this, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. We are going to look at this morning this gospel that was revealed first to the Jews and then to the Gentile. The Roman church was one that had both Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles are non-Jewish. So if, if you are Jewish, then you're a Jew. If, if you're not Jewish, then you're a Gentile. And, and what God, what Paul is saying here, God is saying through Paul is that the gospel came for all. It's we're, we're all part of God's sovereign plan as God has came to redeem and save the lost. I gave you this definition for the gospel, that the gospel is the good news that Jesus came to rescue and restore all of humanity through his life, death, and resurrection. He's given us all an opportunity to say yes to him, to submit and surrender our lives to him. And I came to a problem this week because I need to be honest with you. I really love chapter eight. We just talked about it. Christ in me, there's no condemnation. God works for the good of those who love him. There's no separate. I mean, it doesn't get much better than chapter eight. It actually does. Chapter 12 of Romans is my all-time favorite chapter. And so I was so excited to get to chapter 12. And I thought, all right, I'm going to get through chapters 9 through 11, which really are a package deal. They're talking about this sovereign plan of God. What is God going to do now with the Jewish people now that he's grafted in us, the Gentiles? He came for all. So does that mean that he rejected the Jews? We'll see today. No, not at all. And so I thought, okay, I'll study it. I'll preach it. Here is what happened. I opened up God's word, and, and maybe this has happened to you. You come with your assumptions. You start reading God's word, and it cuts to your heart. And this is what happened to me this morning. So if it's personal, I want to apologize from the front end. It got me. This got me. In chapter 9, Paul starts by saying this. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I am great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Paul is broken because his people do not know Jesus. Man, he's given us so much in chapters one through eight, and it could have finished here, 
but the fact that the last thing that Paul said in Romans, we are more than conquerors. No one can separate us from God. That should be like a, whoa, we're doing it. We're, we're, we're right there. But then he moves right into chapter nine with a broken and anguished heart because his people, the people closest to him, most dear to his heart, have rejected the very Savior that died for them. And where I was convicted is that I'm, I have a ways to go in that, where I am not often anguished for those that do not yet know Jesus as Paul is and as we will see Jesus was for us. What, what, what anguishes us? I got to be honest again. I was anguished yesterday coaching my kids in, in soccer. You know, that's what brings me anguish, this competitive nature. And I'm like, come on, guys, I coached you better than that. You, you could give a little bit more. And of course, I kept that all, all quiet. I never said any, anything to that. So uh, I, 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 I was anguished because my team wasn't winning. Do we get anguished when things don't go our way? This deep sorrow, this deep grief in us, this troubling spirit that comes upon us because of a circumstance. I know a lot of us are in anguish right now because of sickness, because of someone that we love is nearing the end of their life, a circumstance that we just can't change and we may deem hopeless. Well, here's where things get really beautiful. The solution to every single problem that we face here on earth is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when we say yes to Jesus, we may not get the answer that we are looking for, but we get this peace, we get this comfort, we get this joy that we can't explain. And, and, and we get a promise of eternity. And so in those that are, are around us and in those people that, that we may be in disagreement with or, or we may be anguished for because of a sickness or circumstance, man, are we also anguished for their spiritual health? The fact that we just saw, man, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. If you're not in Christ, your sin will condemn you. And when you realize that truth, does that bring us to anguish? Or, 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 or is it ap apathy? Maybe even worse, resentment, bitterness, anger, hatred. Paul here is broken because his people don't yet know Jesus. And so this morning, I want to look at verses 9, and I want to look at verses 11, kind of bookends, and then next week, we'll get our marching orders from chapter 10 on how to proclaim the gospel, how to share this good news that we've been given. It's going to perfectly align with focus, because the theme of focus is... Uh, High school students are here. I'll just go ahead and spoil it for you. Proclaim his name. How to, how to proclaim the gospel message. So God lined this up. I'm not good enough. Our student pastor is not good enough to line this. It just lined up perfectly. So we'll talk about chapters 9 and chapter 11. What I want to ask the question is, what's anguishing you right now? And, and if it's not the lost in your life, then my hope is that we would cultivate this holy anguish, because again, it is the solution to every problem that we face here on earth. I want you to think about it. I mean, what, 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 it, what is truly bothering you, and, and how does the truth of the gospel bring you hope, and how can the truth of the gospel bring someone that you love hope? So let's uh, dive in. Let me pray. Jesus, we want to learn from you. We want to learn from your word, and we want your anguish 
Lord, this holy anguish that Paul is speaking about, that, that you lived, Jesus, for those that are not in Christ, maybe those in the room right now that, that are thinking about following Jesus, thinking about the things of God, but have yet to say yes to you as their Lord and Savior. Lord, speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me keep reading here in verse uh, nine, in verse. Uh, Four, theirs is the adoption. So Paul is speaking to the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. There is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. From them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all forever. Praise. Amen. Exclamation mark. So what Paul is saying is that they're a big deal in God's story. The first thing that we need to do to, to cultivate this holy anguish is we need to know and we need to trust God's sovereign plan. He had a plan in place before he created the world. Four themes uh, that, that, that follow the whole storyline of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Here they are, creation, that God had a plan to create us in his image, the only created thing that actually bears the image of our creator. He actually wanted to rule with us. Not He didn't, didn't want to rule over us. He wanted to be over us so that we, he could be, we could be in this with him. He wanted intimacy, and we broke that intimacy when we said, you know what, God? I got it. I don't need you. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'll decide what is good and true. And so therefore the fall of humanity through Adam and Eve and everybody else that, that came afterwards. But God in his love pursued us. He didn't give up on us. He didn't give up on the Jews. He didn't give up on anyone. He, he, he is planning to redeem all of humanity through this man named Jesus. Ultimately in Genesis chapter 12, God chooses this one family, and God promises them, hey, I'm going to bless you. And through this blessing, the whole world will be blessed. The whole world will know my character. The whole world will know my faithfulness and love. And so through the people of Israel, we have this ultimate Messiah, this king named Jesus, whom now the whole world can be saved if we surrender to him if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that he has been raised from the dead. And then ultimately, God will restore all things when Jesus comes back to judge the living and the dead. So we're in this in between redemption and in restoration where the kingdom of God has been inaugurated and it is also still yet to come. That is God's sovereign plan. And, and what we're asked to do here in, in Romans 9 is to trust God. So here is what he says in verse 6 of chapter 9. It is not as though God's word had failed. So God's word did not fail when Jesus came into the picture. No, Jesus uh, fulfilled God's promise to the whole world that we now have blessing through Jesus, through his people. He writes, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children of physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offsprings. What he's saying there is that Abraham had two children, Isaac and Ishmael, and the promise came through Isaac's 
family line, not Ishmael's. And all the way down until we get to Jesus, where that is now open to anyone who comes to faith in Jesus. So God's word has not failed. In fact, it has been fulfilled and it is, it is keep happening. Uh, one of the things that I think Paul is saying here to the Jewish people is he's reminding them what he told them in Deuteronomy. This is beginning of the Bible. He writes this to God's people. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all people, meaning they did nothing to deserve God's love. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It is God's sovereign plan that the people of Israel were chosen. And it is a big deal. Paul says that is a big deal. God's plan continues. And, and then he writes and, and he goes on in chapter 18 of, of verse nine uh, of chapter nine he says, therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. So we just talked about Egypt and uh, the Israelites going out of slavery. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And in chapter nine, he says that he hardened Pharaoh's heart to show the world the majesty and the glory of God's power. That's why he hardened Pharaoh's heart, to fulfill his perfect and sovereign plan. So one of you will say to me, verse 19, then, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purpose and some for common use? We as humans, Rhonda said it earlier, we, we are prone to wonder. We are prone to forget God's plan and his goodness. And oftentimes we look at circumstances and, and, and what do we say? First thing, God, this is not fair. And here's what we need to know from this, that God is fair. This broken world and life is not fair. We still live in this broken, not yet reality, but God has given us the promise that just God will come to avenge all evil and make all things right Someday, sometime in his way. Glory to God. That's his business, not ours. Our job, to trust God's sovereign plan. First Timothy 2 talks about a, um, a dichotomy here that, that I want to address quickly before moving on to the next point, and that is one of God's moral will versus God's pro providential will. His God's moral will is who God is. He is just, he is love, he is good always. That is constant, and his providential will is how things unfold in our chronological time, uh, uh, you know, timeline of human history, in our lives even, how things unfold. We, we don't know until it happens. There's no way to know, but God does, and yet he still allows all sorts of stuff from happening. But one thing we do know in his moral will is that God wants all to be saved. He wants all to know 
of his love through Jesus. That's what he's saying in 1 Timothy 2 when he says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So uh, this is a, a quote, God's moral will that all will be saved, but it is not his providential will that all be saved. Salvation will, will come only to all people who believe. Here is where this holy anguish comes in. Not all will say yes to Jesus. And the question is, does that break our hearts? Or does that give us this sense of entitlement and spiritual pride? Here's a question for us. Who is God wanting me to pursue this week? In this sense of holy anguish, in the sense of wanting someone to come to know Jesus. We'll talk more about how we do that next week. But this morning, I just want to ask, who's the Holy Spirit putting on your heart and in your mind to text, to call, to get together for coffee, for breakfast, for lunch, for dinner, and say, hey, how are you? And, and what are you thinking about God these days? I wonder if some God winks, some God coincidences may result from that, in that, in saying, you know, that's crazy that you said that. That's crazy that you texted me. Has that ever happened to you? Holy Spirit does that. There are no such thing as God, or there is no such thing as coincidences, only God. In verse uh, 10, 1 through 4, uh, Paul writes again this heart that he explained in, in 1 Timothy. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. I think Paul does something really cool here that is for us in, in this season. He does two things. One, he calls out uh, God's heart, and then he calls out uh, the good of those that are far from God. So he, he says, hey, they're, they're, they have zeal, so that's what's good, but, but their zeal is not for God. They're not submitting to God. And I wonder for those that are far away from God in our families, if we can call out the good and in them. Man, they're really seeking. They're seeking truth. They're spiritual, right? That's a normal word that we hear. They're looking for something. They're for a higher power. And, and we can call out that good, but then also call out God's heart. Are they submitting to God's righteousness? God's heart is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who puts their faith in him. Again, when we do this, it keeps us from harboring this spiritual pride. I want to move through and in chapter 11 now, I want to talk about the grafting of new believers into the family tree of God. Again, we'll talk more about chapter 10 next week, but in verse 17, this is what Paul says. If some of the branches have been broken off, those are the Israelites who have rejected Jesus, and you, Gentiles, though a wild olive shoot, Remember that detail, wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. Do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. 
If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Spiritual pride looks like this superiority. Because I'm in Christ, I'm better than others. Uh, spiritual pride can also be seen as arrogance. Spiritual pride can manifest itself in apathy for those that don't know Jesus, in this lack of anguish that someone is not yet in relationship with the Lord. And, and I want to lean into this because it has everything to do with this idea that we've been grafted into the family tree of God. And uh, what I love about this is that in John 15, we're also, we also see this image of being grafted, being uh, in the branch and in the vine. John 15, one through four, Jesus is speaking and he says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. That's spiritual fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain, another translation says, abide in me as I also abide or remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. This idea of grafting, I looked it up, not very extensive. WikiHow did it on Google. How do you graft something new into something existing and alive? And I wish I would have done that a couple of weeks ago when we had all those branches fall off because I maybe could have saved some trees in my house, but that's neither here nor there. No place for regret or shame. There we go. So when we graft something, we cut a piece of the old and a piece of the new, and then we put the old into the new, and we wrap it around and hold it together for a long period of time. My friends, that's what it looks like to abide in Christ, to surround ourselves, to be covered in the things of God. We're doing it right now as a body of Christ gathered together to proclaim his name through worship and, and hear his word. We do that in community group. We do that when we pray. We do that when we worship in our cars. We do that when we're in our prayer uh, places, in our hidden uh, uh, places, when we're going to God in prayer. That's what it looks like to remain. And when we remain in him, he says that we will bear fruit, this spiritual fruit that Paul wants to cultivate in us is one that shares this good news with those that don't yet know him in our lives. Many of you, I know, that may be your little kids. For some of us, that's our adult children or our neighbors or our colleagues or our parents or even grandparents that we are praying for. Are we cultivating this sense of anguish that is completely opposite to this arrogance and spiritual pride that we need to watch out for. When um, I was reading this, it just hit me. Man, Paul is in anguish over people that want him dead. The Jews, his very people, 
were persecuting him. I have a few verses that I want to read that, that I found in the book of Acts. This is the chronology of the church. Many of Paul's missions are stated here in Acts 9. We see that Paul was talking and arguing with Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death in verse uh, th- uh, chapter 13. But the Jews incited the devout women and prominence and the leading of men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. I want you to think about those that you disagree with the most. Are we agonizing over their salvation, or, or are we criticizing? Are we patronizing? Are, are, are we allowing our disagreements to take away this holy anguish that God's called us to for them? Paul had it, he was broken. And these guys were coming after him. I don't think there's a better example of loving, loving our enemies in Scripture besides Jesus. Here's a question. Do I off, more often think about myself or others? Am I, am I distracted as I, uh, uh, you know, think about, my, am I thinking about myself more than, than I'm thinking about those that, that don't know Jesus yet? I have a story of... Um, Two men in my life, when I gave my life to Jesus as a freshman at Texas State, I was baptized, and, and I went back to Houston where I did high school, and I had two men that I remember telling. I told more people, but these stories came to mind as I was preparing. One was a, a high school coach, and the other one was an experienced minister. He was a very successful Christian. Uh, uh, he had a thriving ministry. And, and, and when I told uh, my, my high school coach, he was my D-back office, offensive coordinator. Shout out to all D-backs and offensive guys out there, uh, smaller dudes that are fast. I wasn't that fast. Anyway, I told Coach Waddy, and Coach Waddy leapt from his seat. I went into his classroom. He said, oh, man, Jose, I can't believe it. I'm so pumped. And, and he grabbed me by the arm, and, and he said, let's pray. Let's pray. And then we prayed together, and we cried together, and it was a moment of rejoicing. And you know what I felt this week? I felt like that was the result of his holy anguish, not only for me, but also for all of his students that he had been praying over. Because holy anguish, when we see God come through and and we see people connect with him, results in joy, in life, in this celebration. And uh, then the other was this experienced Christian leader. And and when I told him, you would have thought that I told him that I had steak for dinner the last night. He kind of nodded and said, that's good. I'm glad. But, but there was no jubilance. And, and I've been thinking about this this week. And I'm like, Lord, two things. One, I don't want to have that response when someone comes up to me as a Christian leader and says, I have given my life to Jesus. I've made the most important decision of my life. And, and the second is, boy, it struck me. I can get distracted. I can, I can think about myself and my agenda more so than God's mission here on earth, especially as a Christian leader of a church. I don't want to do that. I, I want to break for those that God is trying to reach, and then I want to celebrate when they give their life to Jesus. The key here is abide in Christ. The more that we are with God, the more that we will bear spiritual fruit in our lives. And then the the last and third point is we need to foster severe 
kindness. At the end of Romans 11, uh, Paul writes, notice how God is both kind and severe. He is severe toward those who disobeyed, but kind to you if you continue to trust in his kindness. But if you stop trusting, you will also be cut off. And if the people of Israel turn from their unbelief, they will be grafted in again. For God has the power to graft them back into the tree. You by nature were cut, we're, we're a branch cut from a wild olive tree. There's that wild olive tree again. So if God was willing to do something contrary to nature by grafting you in, into his cultivated tree, he will be far more eager to graft the original branches back into the tree where they belong. This kindness and this severity of God. In Romans 2, it says that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. He says this in Romans 2, 3 through 4, so when you, a mere human, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended you to lead you to repentance. It's God's goodness. It's God's love. It's God's grace that brought us in to God. As we dealt with the severity of eternity, we will be condemned if we are not in Christ. That is true. And so that is severe. But man, God was kind. Are we taking severe matters in dealing with them with God's kindness? Do, do, do I take matters seriously, these eternal matters seriously, and respond with the kindness of God? And, and that's what I want to close with by, by reading Jesus' kindness to us. This is Jesus' perhaps biggest moment of anguish in Matthew chapter 26. Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove, called Gethsemane. And he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. And he took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little further and bowed his face to the ground, praying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done not mine. These words of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he goes to the cross for you and for me, submitting to God's will so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be grafted into his family tree. And what stood out to me was, where is he? He's in the olive grove. I wonder if he is seeing these trees and, and he's looking at these branches and he is seeing each of our faces, if he is reading each of our names, is he is about to do the most amazing, awesome thing in human history when God became man and was obedient to a point of death and death on a cross so that we could be grafted in and be with him forever. He was anguished for our behalf. If you're not in Christ, if you have yet to say yes to Jesus, I want you to know that this is what he's feeling for you before he died for you to pay the price for your sins so that you can be with him forever. And if you are in Christ, is this our response? Is this our brokenness for others? Let's ask God to cultivate in us 
a holy anguish. Let's pray.